0: The text for today's sermon is Mark 1, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Today, we come to a glorious text that reveals Jesus Christ as the Son of God and our glorious Savior. But this text presents a challenge to people like us. In 1971, John Lennon released his classic pop song, Imagine. I mean, it took the world over. A few years ago, early in the COVID pandemic... While most of the world was locked down, a group of celebrities decided to sing Imagine over Zoom. They wanted to sing a unifying ballad for us, since many of us were afraid, we were stuck in our homes, not sure what this meant, where this virus came from, or what we should do. Now, they did not perform the song with the same talent as John Lennon, but they sang the same words. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. I'm not sure what about these words would give anyone hope in the face of uncertainty or death. But they do probably speak to an experience that unite us. See, you don't have to imagine a world like this anymore. You know what this world John Lennon dreamed of would look like. You don't need to wonder what it would look like if people lived only for today. If people imagined they lived in a world without heaven or hell or without God. Our culture and most of our lives reflect a deep belief that all we can see is what matters. So we concern ourselves with being ready for retirement, questions about parenting, solving political problems, changing policies for the sake of the environment, improving health care, quality of life, or having a better marriage. Now I'm not only speaking about non-Christians, we all have this challenge, because while Christians may intellectually agree with what this passage says about Jesus, it's likely at least a lot of the time you don't feel like it's true. You don't live with a sense of a world where God is active through Jesus, where the heavens open, where voices speak from them. And none of this is what motivates you most of the time. We read about a voice speaking from heaven and we can easily wonder why, why doesn't God do this more often? Or at least, why didn't he make his existence more obvious in our world? Now many apologists have offered answers to this question, but what's more interesting than any of those answers is that until the modern enlightenment, no one asked it. This is because people used to think this is the exact kind of world I'd expect if there was a creator God, a spiritual reality. It reveals we live in a deeply unspiritual time. Our day-to-day lives do not seem to take place in a universe where the skies can split open, where voices speak from heaven, where powerful cosmic struggles take place in the desert with a devil. Such an unspiritual life would make prayer a struggle for anyone. Even when prayer is answered, it's easy to think, well, that probably would have just happened anyway. In an unspiritual world, worship becomes uninteresting. We don't really consider how important it is. We don't consider what happens in the spiritual world could be affecting what we do see. Most of us are going to look then to medical, mental, psychological, relational explanations for all our problems. We personally would never conclude people could be sick and dying because of how they come to the Lord's Supper. But that's precisely what Paul in 1 Corinthians says can and does happen. It makes theology we consider complex or difficult uninteresting, unnecessary. We look at the Trinitarian theology implied by Jesus' baptism and conclude, it doesn't really seem like something that will help my marriage or personal growth. The problem with this attitude is you can't opt out of the invisible world any more than you can opt out of gravity. Think of how dangerous your life would be if you tried to live without acknowledging gravity. Yet today, we try and opt out of the spiritual world. And so even when we feel a lack of meaning and purpose, we try and find it from more consumption, pleasure, relationships, or the right job. But even if we don't believe in this spiritual world, the repressed spiritual keeps popping up. There is a fascination today with the New Age, more spiritual forms of medicine, and any kind of story that would indicate the world is a little more haunted. It's possessed by something a little beyond what we can understand. The challenge this text gives us is to take seriously the spiritual and reframe our world in light of who Christ is. Christ's baptism is the foundation to any understanding of him and the Christian spiritual life. It shows us Christ as the place where heaven and earth meet, where God is working in the world, and where we can find the love of God. These are all offered in Jesus. And because he came to reunite God and man and take back all creation from evil, we must feel the weight of who he is and the battle he's come to fight. Mark introduces us to Jesus through his baptism. It's interesting. There's no Christmas story in Mark's gospel. We don't learn anything about his upbringing, his family, his education, his character, or or even his appearance. All we know is, unlike the crowds coming from the cultural and religious center of Israel in the south and in Jerusalem, Jesus comes from the north. He comes from Galilee, a town not even mentioned in the Old Testament. He's coming from the Elk Mound of Israel. So why introduce the Savior this way? Why share nothing about his miraculous birth or background? It's because... The baptism of Jesus is the demonstration of what his ultimate identity is. You can't tell Jesus' story very well without his baptism. This is exactly what the Bible tells us. When the early church needed to replace Judas as an apostle, they had a discussion over what are the requirements to be an apostle. Peter shares the answer in Acts 1, 21 and 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Peter says that part of their role as eyewitnesses is to testify to Christ, and that witness needs to include his baptism. In fact, all four of the Gospels record his baptism, and they record three signs that show Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who will bring in the kingdom of God. The signs are, one, the heavens are open to him, two, the Spirit descends on him, three, the voice a voice from heaven speaks to him. We will consider these three signs, and they will show us that Jesus not only has the power and authority to act for God they show us he is God himself come first the heavens are torn open this is because Christ opens the heavens to earth now there's a big difference between something simply being open and torn open the word here is the heavens are torn open ask a mom about this difference There's a big difference when a mom opens a package of food. It can be closed again and stored. And when her kids do. When the kids tear it open, it will never be the same again. It can never be closed. Mark isn't describing the heavens opening so a heavenly beam of light can get through to shine on Jesus in this special moment. The heavens are torn open. The heavens cannot be closed up again. The world will never be the same after Christ. Israel had been waiting for a day when the heavens, meaning God's dwelling place, would be open to the earth, meaning the realm of people, us. The Old Testament promise was that this would come with the Messiah. We can hear this longing in Isaiah 64, one, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. They longed for when heaven and earth would meet. And now in Christ, the heavens were torn open, and so what God was doing could never be undone. Jesus was starting a new way of being human, with new access to God, a new spiritual order between God and man had begun. Now, I'm not saying that after Christ, all people have the ability to get to God. I'm saying the opposite. It's that God and his glory have the ability to get to you, no matter who you are, or where you are, where you've been, or what you're doing. This sign shows us the place where God and humanity meet. And where you meet God is in Jesus. The second sign that occurred at his baptism was the Spirit's descent like a dove. Above all, it was believed that the Messiah, this long-awaited Savior, would be empowered by God's Spirit to serve him and save the people. This sign shows us that God is at work in the world uniquely through Jesus Christ. This is precisely how Jesus describes his ministry in John 5 19 through 23. Jesus gave them this answer Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For if the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does, yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus says, There's a perfect match between what he and God the Father are doing in the world. God is active, not inactive, but he has decided to be active in Jesus Christ. Most Christian art imagines this sign as a gentle white bird landing on Jesus' shoulder after his baptism. And more broadly, in Christian art, the Holy Spirit is often represented by a dove, However, this is a product of our creativity, not what Mark says about Jesus' baptism. He says the Spirit's descent is dove-like, not that the Spirit looked like a dove. The descent of the Spirit does not roar like a lion. God's reign does not begin with an eagle shrieking, diving from heaven. The Spirit comes gently, graciously may be unnoticed to many. And he hovers over a man because now God is going to dwell with man, not just in a temple. He's not just going to transform creation. He's going to transform humanity through his servant. And this work may be gentle and unassuming, but we're not easily satisfied with this kind of work by God. Many Christians today are intent on having supernatural and mystical experiences. Why? Why do these Christians feel like they need these kinds of supernatural experiences? The reason is because they feel the same lack of supernatural in their day-to-day lives as we do. And they're trying to get assurance of God's presence, of the supernatural, of Christ's power through something they can experience. But, the problem isn't that we lack supernatural in our lives. The problem is our lack of understanding of it. Our inability to recognize it. Just like the Spirit's gentle descent on Christ, God is working powerfully today, but often in a quiet way. God is at work in the reading of His Word. God is at work in our prayers, really. God gives the world, a visible sign of his presence on earth, the church. When we go to our parenting, God is at work, in fact, to raise immortal souls. God is at work. He's discipling us when he lets us suffer, get angry, or fail. And even though this work may not be noticed by many, This is the work of God transforming humanity through Jesus Christ. In fact, it's all the universe where God is active. John Calvin called the universe the theater of God's glory. The third sign, then, is the voice from heaven speaking to Jesus. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This sign tells us, what the other two signs have shown us. This sign tells us who Jesus is. It sounds much like the words of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, the royal psalm, about how God has chosen to work through the king of Israel, that they would have the closest relationship. You are my son. He would have the authority of God. God would stand with him. and No enemy could overthrow his rule oh, Israel longed for that kind of a king again? Because they had a problem. All the kings they had were overthrown and failed. Psalm 2 overshadowed a true son of God who would have a perfect relationship to God as his son because it was his nature. Jesus Christ is the only son of God in this way. Jesus' identity cannot be understood apart from his relationship from God the Father. This is how Jesus addresses him. And notice this voice speaks to Jesus, not about him. God says, you are my beloved son. This is not primarily communication to others about Jesus. This is communication of love of a father for his son. This sign says God loves Jesus you find the love of God, where? In Jesus. And if you want to know what it means to be godly, you must love Jesus Christ, his beloved Son. All of these signs reveal the essential identity of Jesus. You should feel awe that Jesus, the Messiah, is rending the heavens so God and man can meet. You can find purpose when you understand that he is the spirit empowered servant working in your life to transform you. You can have a deep sense of love knowing the Father in Christ and His love for you. Remember the challenge. The question is, how would taking the spirituality of the world and how would reframing your world around Jesus affect you? Around God's love? Around God's working? Around That you have access to God. But, our text isn't over. Christ's temptation shows us why Jesus was anointed for ministry the way he was in his baptism. Because Jesus Christ has come to be your champion. So you must feel the weight of his victory over sin and Satan. Jesus is drove into the wilderness by the Spirit. This is why the Spirit came, so that he would go to the wilderness. And while what happens is only covered in two verses, we will see who Christ's enemy is and what conflict he's come to fight. First, let's notice who is Christ's opponent. What enemy has this king come to conquer? Satan. He's a spiritual being who stands completely opposed to God, who the Bible associates with all evil. We are told he's the one who appeared in the garden to tempt humanity to sin. Jesus calls him the father of lies and a murderer from the start. Jesus has not come for anything but the reversal of all evil. Jesus comes and is playing for the highest stakes for nothing less than the eradication of all evil and the redemption of everything in heaven and on earth. The spiritual world we live in is one of conflict between good and evil. Recognizing this, when someone was baptized in the early church, they had to declare, I reject Satan and all his works. You see, they lived in a world where many new Christians had once followed pagan religions and other spiritualities. They were announcing a break with everything opposed to Jesus to identify with him and his people. Maybe we need to bring back this practice. Because there's plenty in our day that Satan loves. He loves all error that divides the church. He loves false teaching. He loves murder. He hates life. He loves a world of constant temptation. He loves confusion. He loves darkness. He loves pride. And Christ has come to deliver us from all of this, so that we may make a break with Satan and in his works in our day. Second, we see what is the field of battle where Jesus and Satan fight. It's the realm of sin and temptation. This can seem anticlimactic if we don't feel the depth of the spiritual problem we have. The root problem we all have is sin. Our root problem isn't ultimately oppressive rulers, physical suffering, poverty, injustice. Because even if we had good rulers, good health, good education, financial security, a happy marriage, well-adjusted kids and a nice-looking church, we would still sin. Our lives would still displease God. We would still live under his curse and die under his wrath. Now, this sin, this guilt, may not be a diagnosable, visible reality, but they are as sure and as real as gravity. But Jesus is the Savior who didn't sin. This is incredible. Think back to when Satan began his work, tempting humanity in the garden. Adam and Eve listened to his voice and rebel against God. From the beginning, humanity's problem was and is sin. And no one had overcome it. There had been many great heroes of the faith that God had worked through, but no one had overcome sin. God chose Abraham, through whom he would bless all the nations of the earth. But Abraham failed. Moses, the great deliverer of Israel, the giver of the law, perhaps he could overcome sin like he did Pharaoh and all the Egyptian gods. There had never been a man with more supernatural power than Moses. But with Israel in the wilderness, he sinned, and was not even allowed to enter the promised land. We won't even talk about how wrong things went during the judges with men like Samson. But then Israel got a king. And we'll skip Saul, since obviously that wasn't the one that could work out. But David. David. He was the apple of God's eye. He was the man after God's own heart the writer of many of the psalms we sing, he's the giant killer, the great builder of Jerusalem, the king with a great kingdom, who sinned so grievously, his dynasty would be at war with itself until it was conquered and left with no obvious heir. And we don't even know how many of these men were directly tempted by Satan. But Jesus was. Jesus was directly, personally, and intensely tested by Satan and did not fail. He did not sin. You have a Savior that did not fail and did not sin. He did not sin in the face of Satan himself, so he will not fail you. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The fact that Jesus was tempted means he is able to sympathize with you. He has experienced what you are going through. He knows. He knows your struggle and stands ready to help you because he has succeeded where we failed. And Jesus knows the struggle with evil and temptation more than any of us ever will. It can be easy to think maybe Jesus doesn't really get it, how hard temptation is because he's God. But he does. This is how C.S. Lewis puts it. It's, it's too good not to quote. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try and resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know it would have been like an hour later. Quote. And Christ never gave in. He resisted. He knows our weakness because he was tempted, but offers us his strength because he succeeded. And remember where this spiritual war is taking place. Spiritual warfare is less about stories of demons manifesting in the world and more about answering the question Will you obey God? Real spiritual warfare is taking place every time you are tempted to sin. Christ's struggle with Satan doesn't take place first and foremost in the fantastical or the miraculous, but with sin and temptation. That's the place of battle, obeying God or not. And the spiritual life, the victorious life, is one of confessing our sin because we fail and seeking to obey God. No one gets to opt out of this battle. We're all somewhere in it. We're either finding life and the love of God in Christ, or we'll be left alone in a world with a dangerous spiritual enemy. There's a famous quote when it comes to Satan. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. This reminds us of the danger that we've been getting at. If we don't have any sense of the spiritual, we'd be completely Not on guard to sin and temptation. However, this too might be a trick of Satan. Even if there's a kernel of truth in this statement. Because you can believe the world is darker than you gave it credit for. You can become confronted by the realities of Satan and evil. But there's no hope in that kind of realism. Actually, the greatest lie the devil ever told is that Jesus Christ was not the Son of God come in the flesh to save you. Satan is happy to use anything to keep you from seeing your need for Jesus and understanding who he is. Because without him there is no light. There is no reuniting of meaning, of purpose, of heaven and earth without him. So any kind of spirituality that does not start with Jesus and make knowing him its goal, is in danger. Because it cannot solve the real spiritual problem you have. Sin. And other than Jesus, there's no other Savior that has victory over sin, Satan, and hell. But to feel the weight of the good news of Jesus' victory, you need to remember where the disciples started their testimony. They were called to bring the good news of Jesus into the world. They went to announce that God and man have come together in Christ. The world that as they knew it would never be the same. They were to challenge everything that opposed Christ, since they knew he had all spiritual power. And this testimony started with his Baptism they were to tell the world, I saw Jesus Christ, the Son of God, baptized by John. Because Jesus' baptism makes it all personal. Because even if this all was cosmically important, how could it help someone like me, so disconnected from God, I struggle to pray? Could a person like me, who has a hard time explaining the Trinity, really know the love of the Father and Son and Spirit? Couldn't Jesus' defeat of all evil and sin really just mean my doom? The answer is, He was baptized. Jesus came to the Jordan with all the crowds. Jesus wasn't repulsed by all the sinful people who were being baptized. He joined them to be baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus willingly identified with sinners in his baptism. He didn't need to repent of sin. That's the whole point of his temptation. He never had any sin. He came looking for something very different at baptism than the rest of the crowds. They came to find forgiveness and repent of their sins. Jesus came to baptism to find sinners. Jesus chose to identify with sinners at baptism. Jesus' baptism shows the world that God, the Son of God, does not despise sinners. He is willing to identify and share all he is and his victory with them. The news of Christ's life, his kingdom, death and resurrection is good news because he is willing to share it with sinful people even deeply unspiritual people. And all of this, all of Christ's power, God's love and deliverance is still available today. Because the heavens are torn open, there's no going back to the way things were before. Amen.